The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Tim Foster. Once again, I'm flying solo because Capital Weekly editor Rich Eisen has had an emergency dental procedure. I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing, but... Uh, yeah, there's nothing funny about an emergency dental procedure. <laughs> well, it's funny when it's not mine. Well, true. Uh, <laughs> so, so Rich is, is having a tooth extracted as we speak. And uh, so you'll have to uh, ride along with me. Uh, also riding along with me today is our special guest, California State Librarian, Greg Lucas. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, Tim. So I think most of our listeners will know Greg's name at the very least. Uh, Greg is has been the state librarian since the Brown administration part two. Uh, uh, but before that, he was a longtime Capitol reporter. And full disclosure, he was the senior editor for Capitol Weekly at one point. He was also the host of our Politics on Tap television show for a long time. And Really, full disclosure, the uh, California State Library also uh, is a grantor for Capital Weekly's oral history program. So uh, I'll get that out of the way right up front. But Greg, welcome. Great. Great to be here. So the reason we wanted to chat with you today is that you are one of the people who has a lot of memories of the building that's being torn down right now, the Capital Annex. Capital Annex was where the legislators, well, Almost all of the legislators were. The lieutenant governor is based there. The governor was based there. A lot of business, a lot of history is made there. And we are currently removing that building and we're going to be building a new building uh, at some point. I, I read somewhere that they hope to have it finished by 2025. I am, I will be speechless if that happens. But uh, anyway, we wanted to talk to you about your memories of the annex and about covering the people there and really anything else you want to talk about. But uh, what really stands out in your mind? You know, you had mentioned before your big memory of the annex was the press room, 1190. You know, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Maybe give us a picture, give our, our listeners a picture of what that was like being in there? Well, sure. I, I mean, I was just going to say, I, I thought for me, for me, it was um, periodically like I'd walk up from our office. Our office used to be, it used to be the Chronicles office was in the Senator office building, the former Senator Hotel. And we'd walk, I'd walk across the street to the Capitol and go in the, the, into the annex. And you, you walk down these hallways that would have, they had all these county displays, right? There were 58 of these different displays. And oh, yeah, those are on the very top cool. of them, it had the name of counties. And, you know, some of them hadn't been touched since Disneyland opened, right? I mean, it looked like they'd gotten their idea for what the county would look like from it's a small world or something. And it kind of <laughs> left it that way. Um, but then you'd walk down this hallway and, and as you say, on the right would be room 1190, which was the press conference, uh, press conference room. And then you'd come to this like crossroads, right? Uh, and if you turned left, there was a bank of elevators on the left, on the right-hand side was the governor's office. A little further down the hallway on the left, as you said, was the Lieutenant governor's office. And, you know, it was sunny, it was well lit, there was these marble walls. And, and I remember periodically thinking, this is so cool, like, I get to work here, right? Like, my job brings me here. And yeah. it, now that I'm older, like, I think I would, 
Like if my job took me to, if my job was being a park ranger in Yosemite, like I think that that would be like way cooler. But yeah. as a reporter who covers the Capitol, it was a great location to be. And 1190 was neat because they hadn't really changed the furnishings there um, since the 1960s. I mean, they had those kind of fiberglass bucket chairs, like who, who was the famous architect who did those? Uh, yeah, well, I know that they were produced by Herman Miller and uh, I think Charles and Ray Ames. That's who I'm thinking of. It, had, it was that kind of look. Yeah. You know, and, and to tie this all together, Ray Ames is actually from Sacramento. She grew up in Curtis Park. Uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, when there was had the 100th anniversary of her birth, they had a, a thing about it. And I think they even did a little tour and showed, I don't know that they showed the inside of the house, but I think the house is still there. And if I remember right, her father was the manager of the theater that is now called the crest. I think maybe when he was there, it was the hippodrome, which was the immediate predecessor to the crest. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, he was, the, he was a theater manager here. That's terrific. So, but yeah, but the, those chairs, uh, any mid-century modern uh, person worth their, worth their salt knows uh, an Eames arm shell. And I believe they were the padded arm shells. Uh, I, we actually have some at home that are the non-padded, just hard fiberglass arm shells. Uh, which a friend of mine derisively calls an ass tray. So I can see um, why. Yeah, uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember the the chairs being terribly comfortable. And for a long time, it, it was a pretty rigid seating arrangement. Yeah, uh, when there were representatives from major media groups from all over the state in Sacramento, and you know the B sat here and the L.A. Times sat here and the Chronicle had its seat and. We were in the front row, and I mean that reminds me of of Jerry Gillum, who, oh, yeah. who worked at the L.A. Times for a long time. And um, you know, relative to him, I was a kid. But in the Senate, which isn't in the annex, but uh, in the Senate, at, when I started the in '88, they they again had very rigid seating, and it was by seniority or importance of the media outlet. I forgot what, but. You'd walk into the entrance of the Senate and to the right, there's a, there's well, to the left and the right, there are columns. And just to the right of the column was the LA by God times. Right. And next to that was the Chronicle. So I come in there and sit down and he introduced, Jerry introduces himself to me. And uh, I said, Oh, Greg Lucas, aren't you married to Donna Lucas? I said, well, yes, I am. And he said, yeah, you know, I held her in my arms when I started for the L.A., when she was born, like when I started at the L.A. Times. Wow. And it was another one of these, like, how cool is this? Like, I get to sit next to, like, living history. And in the annex, right? So you you remember this, where, so, uh, you know, when the budget would go late. So yeah. now there's the penalty, right? If you don't pass some kind of a budget by June 15th, the legislators get their pay docked. Right. So there were there were years, right, where the budget would go into July and go into August. There'd be these fights over education funding and all this stuff. And so when the governor signed the budget, right, there there was a certain amount of urgency to it. So sometimes it'd be like 10 o'clock at night, governor's gonna sign the budget. And so there'd be a like a scrum or everyone would sort of wait outside of the governor's office uh to come in. And I remember standing in one of those things with Jerry Gillum, and he was telling me what covering Pat Brown was like. And so in the governor's office, in the annex, there's a big rectangular room, which was designed to be a conference room. And then there's a little square room off that, which was the governor's office. 
And so up, up through Duke Mason, so whatever, so like the 1980s, the governors used it that way, like conference mm -hmm. room and then the little office space. And then, and then after George, they kind of, Duke Mason, they, they kind of moved, they made the conference room the office. Ah. And so we're waiting outside this conference room and Jerry Gillum says, well, now with Pat Brown, he would, he would call in six print reporters, only newspaper guys, uh, Monday morning into the little teeny square office, which barely fits one person, right? So six people is pretty crowded in there. And they'd come in and they'd just kind of hang out for a while. And they'd talk about, you know, what, what they do over the weekend. How was your golf game? Did you go hunting and kill any defenseless woodland creatures? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> And then, then they'd get around to doing a little bit of work and the reporters would ask Pat, you know, Brown some questions and Pat would answer them. And then this, this, according to Jerry, later that day, they'd have like a real press conference where radio and TV were invited, but they were only limited to questions that had already been asked by the print reporters at that morning kind of gaggle in Pat's office. Wow. And... Just as he finishes telling the story, some staffer for Pete Wilson comes out and says, okay, we're ready to go. TV, you're up front. Radio and print, you fill in behind them. And we just burst into laughter, right? Like how, how everything had changed, you know? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, right. Uh, George Skelton still gets up every day and shakes his fist at that cloud. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. So that actually brings to mind something else that's a little more modern history. From what I understand, this whole process of redoing the annex started with Schwarzenegger. And Schwarzenegger wins the election. He's going to replace Gray Davis. He comes in and Gray Davis is showing him around. And according to Schwarzenegger, he just said, you've got to be kidding me. This, this is the you know, fifth largest economy in the world. I'm not sure what it was at that time, but somewhere in that neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, this is the administrative offices for California. And he's like, I was expecting Hollywood. I was expecting, you know, something majestic and impressive. And he said, he shows me the governor's bathroom. And he's like, I wasn't even sure there was room to sit down. And so apparently Schwarzenegger is the one that really drove this idea of, of rebuilding the annex. And then Brown got on board later and, uh, and it's continued, and ultimately now we're tearing down the annex, we're building a new building. Uh, so that brings me to mind that I know that when John Howard was covering the Capitol for the California Journal, Schwarzenegger had just come in. And I, I remember him talking about going over to press conferences where normally there would be, say, 20 or so <laughs> reporters at a general press conference for the governor. And there were hundreds, like yeah, literally right. they couldn't fit them in and they had to actually go somewhere else and have a press conference because there was not enough room. Right. Uh, do you remember those days? Do you remember the craziness of the Schwarzenegger administration and trying to cover them in that, in a building you were very used to, to doing your work in and suddenly it's got international reporters from every, you know, I would say corner of the world. There's no corners in a globe, but uh, everywhere in the world. That must yeah, have been yeah. pretty different. Yeah, so to your to your point about his thoughts about the inadequacy of the capital. Yeah. He'd periodically film things here in in my in the state librarian's office because it's got this kind of wood paneled 
sort of like it looks more gubernatorial maybe right do i remember that he actually filmed a commercial for his reelection in your office is that oh no, i don't know i, I but but the, but the administration used this space periodically right as yeah. you know and my, my assumption is because it kind of looks more like what you'd think a governor's office might look like. Exactly, yeah. But you're right. I mean, the space in the Capitol wasn't built for the kind of attention that the Schwarzenegger administration got. And um, I mean, some 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 cool additions to the Capitol, to the annex, I mean, came from Maria Shriver. I mean, for example, she insisted that first ladies, first the first partner, right, that they be represented in the governor's office. And so their photos got put up on the wall, you know, along with former governors and things like that. Um, she she also was interested in seeing some of the county exhibits up, you know, upgraded. I, I don't know how successful she was in making that happen. She wouldn't take the asbestos and lead out of them, probably. Uh, well, there's that. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the legislature has been out of that building for a while. The construction people have been working on it for some time. Yeah. They're just now beginning to demolish it. And yeah. the reason is because if they had just demolished that building with without sort of mitigating the asbestos and stuff in it, there'd be a cloud of it over downtown Sacramento. Yeah. So that's why the hollow building was there for so long, right? The hollow annex before it before it began being torn down is because of the, the friable asbestos, like in most buildings built in that time period. Oh yeah. You know, I, um, I've done a lot of rehab on, on old buildings uh, in my life, just because I always lived in old buildings and you really learn to be very careful about the lead paint. You don't want to be totally. sanding that and breathing it and it's everywhere. And then the asbestos and anything built from whatever, you know, like World War II up to about 1970, probably, probably loaded with asbestos. You really got to watch it. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of library renovations, particularly in Southern California, right? Oh, so yeah. Seismic inspectors will come along and they'll say, uh, you know, you need to anchor these bookcases so they don't fall down and crush little kiddos if there's an earthquake. And so as soon as it's right, okay, if you're going to anchor the bookshelves, you have to open the floor. And all of a sudden they open the floor and then, right, <laughs> there's asbestos and the guys in the hazmat suits like from E.T. show up. And all of a sudden an anchoring project becomes like this major. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, I think asbestos was a regular uh, component of that tile that you see on the floors of so many buildings right. from that you know mid-century period. Uh, and I know that having, you know, I lived in a, in a sort of semi-abandoned warehouse for many, many, many years. And the guy that owned it said, see those, see those floor tiles there? And there's only like half of them. You can see they torn down walls. So there's spots where there were no tiles because there had been a wall there. He's like, yeah, that looks like crap. Don't touch them. He's like, as they are, they're fine. You can walk on them, whatever. You start chipping them up. All of a sudden we're going to have asbestos. So he's like, don't touch them. So yeah, it's, it's everywhere back, you know. In, well, in and we, uh, we, the, the you know, reporters peri got periodic tours to sort of what's backstage in that building. Oh, and really? So the piping, the stuff underneath. I mean, there's a lot of things that after 70 years need to be replaced and are kind of inadequate for what powers government now. Right. So yeah. like, like if you go to an old place, like, uh, like on a college campus where the building is 
Oh, my, oh we've preserved this 1927, USC, the Doheny Library, right? Built in 1927, these beautiful murals. Oh, my God. It's like an unbelievably gorgeous, like, library. I don't know how kids can study in it, but but all over are these, you know, extension cords and plug there aren't enough electrical plugs. Oh, it's yeah. something, something as simple as that, right? Oh, and it's yeah, always well, surprised me that the annex could function as well as it did, given that it was built like in the 1950s. Well, and certainly one of the things that I think was making this a popular project with legislators themselves is knowing that there would be no more dog houses. You know, some of those offices in the annex were pretty small. And if I remember right, there was some that had no windows whatsoever, which I don't even think is legal. Uh, like if you're building a, an apartment or a house, you can't even build a, a spot with no window. Um, and so, you know, if you if you pissed off the speaker, you were probably going to find yourself reshuffled into some something that would look like a call closet and uh, your staff was going to sit on your lap because there was nowhere other place for them. And I think they're doing away with that now. I think. The well, they had the one, they had the one office on the sixth floor where the cafeteria was all right and so if you if you're facing the doors going into the cafeteria the you know the stove the oven the cooking stuff was all on the right hand side and there was an office that wasn't very big right and kind of long and narrow that <laughs> backed up against the wall where all of the ovens and stuff were so, and so this was where you know willie brown in particular would send people you know who kind of got on his wrong side. It's fine. We have a lovely office for you. You know, <laughs> on that's the sixth floor. Yeah. Well, that's heated to a beautiful 80 to 90 degrees, right? <laughs> you know, all every time, every month of the year. So, oh yeah. Excellent. Well, plus the noise, right? Plus yeah. like the banging and the pots and pans and the cooking. You know, I got to say, I don't, maybe this is just the nature of the term limits and, and politics today, but I don't, think I hear about speakers and, you know, the pro tems twisting arms quite in the same way that they did in the old days by, you know, doing that sort of thing, like reshuffling the offices and, and you know, sending people into purgatory. I don't, I don't believe that it's just that the legislators of today are nicer than they were back then, but maybe it just doesn't carry as much of a penalty because they don't, I don't know, it's a different world. But uh, yeah, that seemed like something you would read about other speakers doing Fairly frequently, you know, somebody would would piss them off and, and that'd be it. Well, you got me thinking. I mean, I wonder if in a building like the annex, right, where there are like cool offices. Yeah, there's ones, you know, where your door opens onto a little patio, like there's some kind of little sort of um, gardenish kind of place. Or you've got the view of Capitol Park where there's kind of a spectrum of really primo office space, pretty good office space. And then the stuff that's just unbelievably awful. Yeah. Like, that's a more powerful punishment in a building like that than something that's more modern where everything is sort of, okay, you get an office for the legislator. There's a bullpen for your staff. There's somebody who sets out here at, at uh, reception. Right. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's just a little bit, a little bit different. I think Willie Brown was actually one of the more famous folks. For yeah, that. but but it, I mean, it's the group of that. I mean, remember, like for a long, long time, like until 1966, right? I mean, it was a fraternity. I mean, in the sense of group of guys, not not like you know, animal house or something like that. But although, although I do believe there was a lot of animal house in the legislature over the years, but, uh, but I digress. I, I'm sure. But, um, 
So, I mean, I mean, that's a way to control people, right? You know, what kind of space you get. And See, I think Rendon right now, Rendon is thinking, I should have sent Evan Lowe into that sixth floor office. That This would have solved this problem. <laughs> I think I think they were interviewing him a, a few weeks ago and he said something like, oh, do you have any regrets? And he said, oh, I, I don't think I, I don't remember how he phrased it. it was something, I don't think I wielded as much power as I should have. In other words, I didn't punish people enough. Probably thinking about that sixth floor office, right? He's laying awake thinking about that sixth floor office and who should have been sent to it. Yeah, I, I just think of their... There's people who worked in the Capitol in the 1960s and the 1970s who talk about how the, you know, the different legislators in the hallway would be from different parties, but still, you know, hang out and have fun together and things like that and play pranks on each other. And, um, you know, that's something that's a real consistent story when you talk to people that were serving in that era. And it's interesting because... I just read Team Arrivals, the Doris Kearns sure. book about the Lincoln administration and that whole era. And it's funny that I feel like that probably wasn't happening back then because they were literally like slapping each other and, you know, almost getting in fistfights and it was ugly. And I feel like that conviviality maybe was uh, a f- something that had happened between the wars. You know, I, f- I really feel like the World War II experience where it didn't matter if you were Republican or Democrat socialist party, whatever you got drafted and you went to the, you went to Europe or Japan. And I think you came back with a changed perspective about the value of democracy and, and respecting difference, et cetera. And I think that that generation probably looked at things differently than other people who uh, had not gone through such a life-changing, you know, soul grinding experience. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's purely, I'm just flying off the seat of my pants here, but it, I feel like that generation treated this differently and and now it's much more of a blood blood sport you know us and them in a way that it really wasn't then well i think prior to um newt gingrich right there seemed to be some sort of shared understanding that we we have different values but eventually we have to reach some kind of an agreement here for the the greater good of the people we represent and and Gingrich kind of changed the dynamic there where it's like, no, we don't have to do that. It's like, whatever you you want to do, we're against it. And it was about scoring points, right, rather than finding some kind of resolution. I mean, you think about people like Frank Landerman, right? Uncle Frank is, is who John Burton and many other Democrats referred to him, right? He was the acknowledged expert, right, on... Uh, mental health sort of issues. And and he was a Republican. He was from La Cunada, I think, Flint Ridge, somewhere like that. But people would go to Uncle Frank, right, as the the repository of wisdom on these sorts of issues. And everyone respected him. John Burton, to this day, calls John Briggs Briggsy. I, I mean, you know, he, he would, he loved John. He, lo- he loved doing, working on bills with Ross Johnson. And their politics couldn't be more different. And they're like, they they co-authored a bill on asset forfeiture. And I think it was Ross who said, this is one of those issues, right? Where like the property rights Republicans meet like, you know, the crazy liberal people like Burton, right? And, and we agree, right? That asset forfeiture is wrong, but for completely different reasons. And I, I mean, most recently I was impressed by, 
Shannon Grove introduced a bill to expand the Dolly Parton Imagination Library statewide. So Dolly Parton Imagination Library, you sign up your kids age zero to five, and a book gets sent to that child every month until they turn five years of age. Wow, so it, turns cool. out, it turns out there's stacks of studies. Turns out that the cheapest way to create a strong reader is to give them books to read at home. So there's a lot of great things about this program. You're too young, but like I used to mail away box tops to Battle Creek, Michigan, and two weeks later, you know, from Kellogg's, right, a master Greg Lucas. And that, you know, just having something come in the mail as a little kid is kind of empowering. At any rate. I'm going to digress really quickly. Yeah. Speaking of the power of mailing a little kid. So in 1975 or maybe even early 76, I I was very distressed to find that my favorite toy was no longer going to manufacture the, the update. You needed to add this stuff to, to form these little soldiers and they were no longer going to. So I was like, well, I need to sort this out. So I wrote a letter to the president, President Ford. And his wow. secretary of correspondence promptly wrote me back, said that the president was seriously considering my request and would make a decision, you know, as soon as possible <laughs> and sent me a you know, guide to the history of the presidents, whatever. So my parents, lifelong Democrats, <laughs> tolerated me hand making a reelect President Ford sign on my own and putting it in our front yard. So I was, uh, you know, as a kid, I was a dyed-in-the-wool 10-year-old Republican in an all-democratic household because they sent me a letter, you know, then they sent me the little book. So, yeah, speaking of the value of sending a kid a piece of mail, but I digress. No, but I, I was just going to say, so I think if Shannon Grove had been in the Assembly, and, right, a Republican in the Assembly and introduced this bill, it, it, may, it probably wouldn't have passed. But so in the Senate, right, if Tony Atkins were on this podcast with us, right, she would say there's two reasons that she's where she is today. One is the federal program that gives subsidized meals to poor kids because you can't learn if you're hungry. And the other is libraries. And so here's a bill. It's got Dolly Parton. Tony's a Dolly Parton fan. But it, but it's it's literacy. It's creating strong readers. And she co-authored the bill. And I, I've said to her more than once, right? I, I mean, th th this is, this is, it's significant, right? Because it doesn't happen as much as it used to, this kind of, where is an area we can agree on and let's agree on it and work together to solve it, right? That's not as common as it used to be, particularly in this kind of post-Gingrich world where it's, like you were saying, it's an us versus them kind yeah, of. It's equation. like a team sport sort of thing. Right, but th this, I mean, what a cool thing, right? I, I mean- and yeah, I mean, here's the thing that is perplexing to me as an outsider. You know, I've never held elected office. God help me, I never want to held, hold elected office. However, I've been a fanatical history nut since I was a kid. You know, I mean, there was a reason I wrote to the president, you know, because I was a weird kid. But the compromise yeah, is speak to the that. DNA of America. I mean, the whole point is you don't always get what you want. And that's understood and that you come to these thorny issues or that our, you know, our elected officials come to these thorny issues, they have a vigorous debate about them and then they vote. And, you know, as we say, they crowdsource the right answer. And we understand that sometimes you're going to get that wrong, but that you understand that the bigger picture is that the process is really important and hearing these different voices and trying to be fair 
is actually the appropriate way to do this. And this was something that early on, having read you know historical stuff, early Americans were really proud of that idea. And it was a pretty new idea. I mean, obviously the Greeks had it, but uh, in a different format. But the idea that democracy was you didn't always get what you wanted, but that you had a voice, you had a say in, in public policy was something that was really valued. And now compromise is a dirty word, both on the left and the right. I see it, you know, people that are really, really tied into ideology, they they don't think you should ever compromise. And it's weird to me because I'm like, did you not grow up in America where the whole point of democracy is that sometimes you compromise and that you lose some, you win some, you lose. But yeah, I mean, I mean, if you try and compromise now, you're punished by both sides, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, your own team thinks you're a quizzling and the other team doesn't trust you, right? So. Exactly. So I, I don't know. It's interesting, but I, you know, maybe I'm also going to say that it's possible we're just romanticizing the old days. And it's not like there was not some horrible public policy that was just a result of horse trading among buddies. Uh, you know, we all know that happened too. Um, well, so. go to go to the National Archives and look at the first draft of the Bill of Rights. They, and then they have one. They have one on display that's marked up. Oh, really? I mean, previously, the First Amendment, as drafted by the members of Congress, was all about congressional pay and stuff. And, and somebody said, no, nah, yeah, that's bad. Like, let's not start there. You know, and like freedom of speech was two or three further down. You know, that wasn't the top priority in the Bill of Rights. It was like, oh, you know, wow. who can serve in Congress and how much can they be paid? And it, it's a fascinating document. And then just handwritten lineouts, you know, adding adding freedom of assembly. Like, I mean, they didn't include that in the first draft. Wow. And the Constitution's the same way, right? You see all these markups and changes and... I mean, all the compromises around slavery, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's a messy, complicated business that's full of horse trading. It always has been. Yeah. I mean, why Why is the Supreme Court based in San Francisco? Because they didn't want to come to Sacramento. Because the, the California uh, Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, because the climate was lousy. And, you know, the debate in 1872 is hilarious. You know, where somebody says, well, wait a second, you know, the whiskey isn't as good in, in Sacramento as it is in San Francisco, and the food is lousy, and some other guy will say, well, you haven't really suffered too much as a result of being in Sacramento, have you? And the other thing is, like, Sacramento at that point was still flooding on a really, I think 1869, was that the last really bad flood down here? I think that would be. I mean, there's the famous story about Leland Stanford stepping out of the second story window of his house and being rowed like in a rowboat to get sworn in as governor. So I'm assuming most of our listeners may know this, but the whole of downtown Sacramento was lifted. I mean, if you go to Old Sac, which is from the gold rush era, and you're walking around on the streets and you walk into the building, you're walking into what used to be the second floor. Yes, They completely true. filled that up. And if you, you really can see this, if you're down on like Ninth Street, go into an alley at like ninth between J and K and you'll notice the center of the alley is a lot lower than the actual streets. That's because they didn't bother to really fill, fill in the whole alley. Yeah, right. So uh, all of this stuff, you know, has, has changed. I mean, and we're changing this, this building, the annex, which, you know, there were a lot of opponents. Uh, the opponents, I didn't feel like ever particularly got much traction because I think there were so many more people that really did want to see something change. And this was, bipartisan in the sense that it was started by Schwarzenegger and then continued by a succession of democratic governors. Um, but 
change is normal. Not changing is what is not normal in, in anything. And uh, in Sacramento and in, uh, in the downtown area, we've, we've really changed this. Uh, you know, we're a city of levees. The only reason we really exist is because of levees. And yeah, the, the, whole, the whole thing is, is lifted up. And if you look at very old pictures of the Capitol, you'll see that there used to be all these steps to go up to the Capitol that are now gone because they filled it all in. They filled in a whole uh, street level, I don't know if it's 10 feet or whatever, uh, to, to get us to not flood every year, which I don't remember the last time the Capitol actually flooded or you know that area actually flooded, but I think it was about 1869. So uh, I hope, I really just hope they're taking floods into account here when they're building this new replacement building. I imagine they must. Um... But I mean, even today, right? So we the state library's basement is twelve feet below the flood plain. Um, the ra- the railroad museum, right? Their basement is is even more potentially at risk of a flood, right? Because they're so close to the river. So I mean, there's there we had to take steps, and I'm sure they have too, to make sure whatever's in our basement storage isn't going to be destroyed by by water. Like we, when I started at the state library, we had a bunch of glass negatives in the basement and water touches glass negatives and that's it. They're done. So really? we had to go to the trouble of moving those upstairs and, and that kind of a thing. Just, just in case, right. Just to do, I mean, like we don't own it, right. We just take care of it. So right. we, we have to take care of it as best we can. Interesting. I don't know what you store down there, boats. Yeah, right. Well, any other last thoughts about the annex? And like, I mean, what's your take on this? Are you are you sorry to see it go? Or do you think that it was time? Or, you know, I mean, this is obviously outside of your, your well, position I, as the state librarian, but. I mean, there's things I would like to see the new building do that it probably won't, right? So there's supposed to be a 27,000 square foot visitor center underneath the front steps of the Capitol, what I think of as the front steps, like facing the gold bridge, right? Yeah. And so- The west steps. Yeah. So, I mean, 27,000 square feet, when I say it, that like that's sounds big. It's not that big. And so yeah, there was a lot of solicitation of ideas when they were imagining what the annex would look like. And, and there was a, a group of us that suggested- you know, bringing that underground space across 10th Street and, you know, taking that fountain between the two old buildings. Oh, yeah. L- what are they called? L legislative, LOB one and two, right? Right. And, and I'm sitting in one of them. Right. But so taking that old fountain that's there and, you know, having some kind of staircase down and then connecting what's in those two buildings and having an underground you know, tunnel that goes to the California Museum. It's a hundred paces away, right? Um, I mean, that you could you could create and connect these other cultural aspects, and so some of those didn't get incorporated. And maybe they were expensive, but um, I think you kind of made the point earlier, right? So, I mean, the only constant in the universe is change, but I mean, one of the slowest changing entities I've ever seen is government, and true. sometimes that's because you know, fear that the perception that somehow spending money on operating better or meeting current needs that looks like feather bedding to the public. You're building some $750 million edifice 
and I can't meet my rental obligations every month. You know, what are you doing for me when you're doing this Taj Mahal thing for yourself? And I mean, it took the pandemic for the state of California to begin using digital signatures to accept e-signatures. Interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, you could have bought a $5 million house, right, with e-signatures, but you could give out a $10,000 grant, but you had to sign it in ink. So, I mean, that's just sort of an idea of the slowness, right? So what's the, and what's the check writing thing the state uses, right? Isn't that, doesn't that, isn't that COBOL or something? You know, you got me, yeah. We've got a, we've got a thing that handles, we tried, the state tried to create a new one. And then John Chung ended it after we spent 250 million trying to make it work. Because if he hadn't ended it there, it would have cost a billion dollars. But so we have some kind of thing that writes checks for employees that's that's o- o- almost as old as I am. So at, at any rate, I mean, to answer your question, I mean, I think it's time for a change, like charging stations for electric vehicles, right? I mean, a space that's designed, right, to be more like what the head, the capital of the fifth largest economy of the world is. Right. And, you know, I do have to say, in 1952, when you walked into the annex, you know, you're a legislator, you're a staffer, you're the uh, lieutenant governor, whoever was lieutenant governor in 1952. I, I hate to say I don't know. Um, Shame I'm on sure you. <laughs> that building seemed very contemporary and modern compared to what an office building, you know, the office buildings on uh, K Street, you know, there's there's a bunch yeah. of little office buildings that were built, you know, in 1900 or so. And I know we looked at maybe renting office space in one and the offices were tiny. I mean, now Capital Weekly is used to tiny office space, but these were tiny, tiny little offices that were sort of a, a maze. There was, there were, not very good lighting. As you mentioned, there was, you know, maybe two plug outlets that were two prong, like two separate things, two prong, but also, uh, I mean, they probably had three prongs, but they only had two outlets, one, one on every other wall. So, I mean, it really was not particularly functional. And uh, I mean, God, they had really only got off of gas lamps probably 40, 50 years before that. So (laughs) I'm sure that in some ways in 1952, this seemed like the height of, modern convenience, you know, but. And and I wonder, right. I, you know, I haven't investigated, but of course we can at the state library. Um, I mean, did people hate the idea of the annex in 1950? I will bet you anything that there were people, the antecedents of the people who were, were fighting this right now were fighting it back then. Totally. Right. It was, was, I mean, first off, people hated mid-century modern architecture as a general rule. I mean, you know, God, I can only imagine how you actually got a brutalist building built in like 1965 when you show it to people and just the average response was like, it looks like a prison. It looks like a prison designed to break people's soul. I mean, I love brutalism, but most people hate it and they always have. And I could just, yeah, I'm sure there were people fighting tooth and nail to try to preserve the original capital. And I would say you make a better argument since that was the original building. Although in 1908, they had done some modernizations, I guess. But uh, yeah, there's always people. And and if we, here's the other secret. In 70 years, if they're looking at whatever we're building right now and they're talking about tearing it down or modernizing it, there will be somebody 70 years from now going, no, we need to preserve this. This is a classic example of clear, like, you know, 
early early 21st century. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that is like when we say, you know, one thing that ever changes is change, like never goes away as change. That will never change. There's always going to be somebody who's going to be trying to preserve what they grew up with and what they're used to. And, you know, that needs to be preserved and all this new stuff is a bunch of crap. Well, yeah. For, I mean, the classic example, the, like the, with the Chronicle. So the Bay Bridge collapses during the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. Got to right? save it. Well, exactly. And yet, and yet there's, there's 50 years of articles by everyone from Herb Cain to, to just kind of staff writers saying, what, what an obscenity this bridge is. This is the ugliest bridge ever. Right. But then when it came to, okay, let's tear it down and put something new in its place. Oh, we can't possibly do that. Right. And you have just identified the nature of the human species <laughs> right there. You know, it's like, well, this has been a really fun talk. And, you know, I'm going to take a page out of your book. And as we go, I'm going to ask you what you're reading right now. What's on what's on your bedside table? Um, I'm reading. It's a it's a it's a fairly fat book. Um, but so last November, I, I spent two weeks hiking in Nepal. And so we were in the Annapurna Valley, which is the valley that's in front of Everest. And um, and the the guy, Khan Mariarty, who organized the trip, gave me a book called Himalaya by a man named Ed Douglas. And it's sort of understanding that part of the world, like all the way back to 700 AD. So Tibet was a powerful kingdom for a while. And then the, the, you know, the special woodworking clans of Kathmandu. I mean, it's fascinating, right? And it's, you know, it's so neat to get a sense of like I'm just this little dot on this long timeline that goes goes back, but just by being there, like I'm part of it, and so it's it's a fascinating book. It's not an easy read, um, but I'm working my way through it. No, that's good. And I, you know, I'll say I'm reading a, right now. I'm reading Dream Boogie, which is by Peter Gralnick. I think I'm pronouncing his name right, and it's a biography of Sam Cooke, the singer. Oh, cool! And record producer and many ends things. badly. It ends, it ends very badly. Uh, you know, and it's funny because there was a, a documentary about him uh, that got made a few years ago. Very interesting. And, you know, there's a has long since he died. Uh, I won't give away the ending for those that don't know. But when he died, there have been a lot of people who have, have ascribed a conspiracy that his death was was uh, papered over and that he really didn't die the way that the, the quote unquote official story puts it. And it's really, you know, I'm only about half. Well, and I think it's, there was never any evidence for that. There was just like, you know, hey, there's a long history of prominent black people in this country who are saying we need to change things and starting to put wheels into motion to change things. And then they die, you know, in a, in a horrible manner. So there's a long history of that. And there's reasons to be concerned that maybe something wasn't on the up and up. However, I will say, huh. reading the life of Sam Cooke, there were a lot of things leading up to what happened that kind of indicate that he had some problematic behaviors that certainly don't lead you to think that he's going to die in the way that he ultimately did because it was so unpredictable. However, the circumstances that ultimately led to his death mm -hmm. were no surprise to the people that really knew him quite well because he was, you know, let's just say he did not treat women particularly well uh, in many different ways. And so the idea that he ultimately would end up having that cause a major problem for him and end his life uh, it does make sense. Anyway, it's a great book. Gralnik is a great writer. I've read several other books by him, uh, but a friend of mine found it at a thrift store and said, hey, aren't you a big Sam Cooke fan? And, and gave me this book. So 
uh, been really enjoying that. Yeah, but he left us the music, so that's a cool thing. Oh, man, you know what? It's funny is when I grew up, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Sam Cooke's music was everywhere. Totally. When you heard You Send Me and Bring It On Home To Me and Chain Gang, et cetera, all the time. Those were still kind of regular radio things that end up in TV shows and movies. And it's interesting that now that he's one of those people who maybe because he's been gone so long, he hasn't really maintained a presence. Like I see young people, you know, I talk to them and they really have never heard him. You know, they're in their twenties or early thirties. Like, Oh, Sam Cook. I think I've heard the name. And I was like, oh, wow. I mean, Sam, that's well, shocking, well, to me, but it happens. Uh, we were just talking about him. It'll come around again. Yeah. Exactly. All of a sudden, mid-century modern would be like, cool, right? Well, it already, I mean, the everyone will is, remember Sam Cook. Yeah. Well, mid-century modern, the funny thing is that did have this big revival. I don't know if you noticed this about 10 years ago, every car commercial that had like a cool car, like some car that was like an Audi or something, they'd pull up to a really stylish glass flat roofed building, you know, like somebody's house and they would, you know, or they'd be inside drinking a cup of coffee in a, in a Herman Miller chair, you know, like that went from being very unpopular 20, 25 years ago and kind of out to being the ultimate hip thing. And, and uh, you'll see that if you start noticing it on, on even commercials and movies made about 10 years ago, all the cool people used to be that all the villains lived in modern houses. Yeah. Right. You know, and then now, you know, in the last 10 years, it's been like all the cool people live in, in the mid-century modern houses. Well, I'll tell you 25 years ago, Right. I don't think they would have preserved all the chairs and tables from 1190. Oh, God. Right. Oh, now where did they go? They were preserved. Well, they're at the parks warehouse. We want to we're going to we're working with them um, or the plan was we haven't like gotten anywhere on it yet, but is to do a little mini version of it in one of the windows of the state library. Like to here's what the 1190 looked like. Yeah. So but yeah, they're all over, you know, in the. The park storage space where the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, did I say? I was going to say yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we, well, we can make this really timely. You know, there was there is a new Indiana Jones. Speaking of something's never uh, giving up, uh, there is a new Indiana Jones movie. The next time they're just going to have to uh, CGI and AI uh, Harrison Ford because he'll be like 125. Ooh, I hope not. <laughs> well, it, hey, if there's money in it, they'll do it. So we'll see. So anyway, well, Greg Lucas, thank you so much. Well, thanks, and, Tim. Uh, it's good I, to I'm talk assuming, to you. Assuming you don't want to join us for who had the worst week in California politics, I'm sure you'd love to leave that to uh, your hat. You're welcome to, to sign in. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. <laughs> I had a good week. Yeah. So anyway. All right, Greg. Well, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for sharing your memories of this. And uh, by Anytime. the way, for our listeners, if you haven't gone over to the uh, California State Library, you know, go poke around. I mean, there's some pretty cool stuff there. If nothing else, the murals just when you're wandering around are gorgeous. You know, and you just restored all those fairly recently too, right? Well, we just added a new one that's uh, a lot more reflective of California's diversity than what was put on the walls in 1928. Really? So third, third floor reading room. Un- unbelievable. Oh, that's good to know. So anyway, well, Greg's been great talking to you. And uh, and we'll you know, maybe we'll have you back on so you can do a walkthrough of the new building and give us your uh, architectural critique. <laughs> yeah, Okay. My two cents, which will be worth every penny. All right. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. All right. So that was our conversation with California State Librarian Greg Lucas, who had a long career in the Capitol covering uh, 
covering governors, covering the legislature, covering the courts, covering it all. And now we're going to go ahead and turn to everybody's favorite part of the podcast, who had the worst week in California politics. And as luck would have it, uh, the person who may have had the worst week in California politics, Rich Eisen, who had a broken tooth, uh, is now out of his dental procedure, back with us. He's no longer uh, sedated and uh, ready to tell us who had the worst week, Rich? Who, who was it? Uh, yeah, maybe I will be the candidate, the alternate candidate this time, because there's, you know, death, taxes, and me breaking a tooth on the first day of a long holiday weekend. It never fails. And uh, it was bad enough that, yeah, they eventually had to, they had to extract it and I had to go under full sedation. And of course, it, uh, and then all ended up being right when we were talking to Greg. So thanks for covering for that. I, I, I missed being part of that. I love talking to Greg any chance we get. And uh, so that, that was a bummer, but, uh, but yeah, there's actually a much better candidate than me for, for the worst week in California politics. I don't see how it could possibly be anybody else, but, um, the assembly Democrats in the California legislature and specifically, uh, assembly member Reggie Jones Sawyer, what a, what a, uh, what a rough week uh, for those who may not have been paying attention. Uh, essentially, they got the committee to block a bill. Senate Bill 14 had passed unanimously in the Senate, uh, dealt with uh, making more severe the penalties against child sex traffickers. There are some aspects of the bill that the Assembly Committee didn't like on public safety, didn't like. And so they opted not to pass it. And it became a really big deal because it got the attention of some guy you may have heard of named Gavin Newsom, who said at another press conference that he he was surprised the bill hadn't passed. And he had reached out to the bill author, Shannon Grove, Republican Shannon Grove, uh, and would work with her directly on this bill. That is never good for the people who were uh, trying to stop that bill. Also happened to come right at the same time the new assembly speaker, uh, Revis, was uh, appearing at the Sacramento Press Club. That news from the governor came out right at that time. So, of course, reporters immediately asked him about it, put him on the spot. So he, including asking directly if he was planning to replace Reggie Jones-Sawyer on the Public Safety Committee chairmanship, that's not a question you want to be asking when you've been emphasizing to every... Every question you've been getting for the whole time, you've been saying, well, I've only been on the job two weeks. That's the last question you want to get when you've already been saying that. So, yeah, bad, bad week for the Dems. It eventually got kicked back to to that committee. They tr the Republicans tried to strong arm it out into the entire assembly. That didn't work. It got kicked back to the committee. It got voted on or approved unanimously 6-0, a couple of, of abstentions. Uh, one of the committee members, Liz Ortega, actually tweeted out an apology for not supporting it the first time. Yeah, when I saw it, and then the Dems, uh, the Assembly Dems also had a whole Twitter thread uh, uh, sort of explaining the rationale, and it was up for a short time, and they pulled it down, which, uh, you know, what's one of Rich's favorite sayings is, if you're explaining, you're losing. <laughs> and this is a really good example of that. Nuance doesn't sell in political messaging. And there's, a, I mean, there is a reason that political messaging has become what it has become. And you may not like it or what have you, but um, it is effective. And yeah, if you're explaining, you're losing. So um, 
you know, when you start talking about nuance and the, uh, the average person just glazes over, they don't, they don't want to hear that, right? There, it, there's no sizzle. I mean, that's, that's not what the average person is going to respond to. The really puzzling thing to me here is it's not like there was a, it was a surprise that this bill came up, right? And it had cleared the Senate unanimously. They had to know that this was, they were going to be put in the position. And by they, I mean the Democrats on the Public Safety Committee in the Assembly. They had to know. And so in my mind, they really got outflanked pretty hard by the Republicans on this because, of course, immediately as soon as this bill got blocked, and especially after the governor weighed in, they just started beating the living tar out of Democrats on social media over this. Well, and, and to be fair, not just social media, I believe media at large picked this up. Yes. It, it was being covered very negatively, let's say, uh, by the media. I think even some of the national media kind of weighed into this because it's a, again, yes. it's a hard thing to explain how you're voting against penalties for child traffickers. Now, of course, there were real, you know, there were legitimate reasons to be concerned about this particular bill. Yes. One of the primary ones being that this could end up uh, negatively impacting people who had been trafficked and then would get sort of caught up in it. And, and so there were some, there were some legitimate defenses, but again, hard to explain when you're, you're saying, yes, I don't want to put child traffickers in jail for a longer time. That's yeah, that, a hard, that hard message to get off. That doesn't sell with the, with the, with the public, right? Because that's all they hear. Oh, you support pedophiles, you support traffickers, you support, you know, these monsters, and, you know, that that's that's a losing message if you're on the other end of that. Right. And the thing to me is they probably could have countered with instead of trying to go you know, point by point, nuance by nuance, you know, they very easily could have said we're not going to support a bill that could potentially re-victimize a trafficking victim. That's all. they. I mean, that's so much better messaging than what they came up with. And so. <laughs> oh, did they? Did they come up with something? I missed that. <laughs> well, they they did, and then they pulled it back off Twitter, right? They, here they went the professorial thing. Let's let's do a fourteen point you know rationale. And oh my gosh, people, come on now! I think the reality is it put everyone on the committee in a bad space. It put Democrats in general in a bad light. It put the governor in a bad light, which you never want to do. And more than anything, it really put the assembly speaker in a tough position um because you know one of the first questions that came to him right after that is are you going to replace reggie jones sawyer on as the chair of the public safety committee now he managed to work around that answer by saying you know decisions like that had not been made well you know he may or may not make that decision that is yet to be determined but he doesn't want to be getting a question like that two weeks into his speakership he's still in the honeymoon phase so you know, I, I and when you couple it with the similar challenges from a messaging perspective on all the fentanyl bills earlier this year and in the, in these committees, you know, I think people who are trying to message for Dems right now are, are you know, holding their hands on their head going, guys, come on. So, um, again, I'm not commenting on the bills. I'm commenting on the messaging. These, these are tough Oh yeah, good, good or bad, whether or not this was a good decision or not to this bill, having your feet held to the fire and then sort of changing your mind at the last minute and, and moving the bill through the committee, uh, 
not the process you want, not the messaging you want. And uh, it, it was, you know, I'm sure Reggie Jones Sawyer has had better weeks. Let me just put it that way. I'm sure he's had better weeks and I'm sure his colleagues have had better weeks. And I, I'm, I cannot imagine anybody was happier to see the recess come up than uh, certainly assembly Dems and certainly everybody on the public safety committee and probably most of all, Reggie Jones Sawyer. It's probably a good time for a little break from, uh, you know, having this bill be top of the news feed for a while. Yeah. And, you know, I do have to say earlier in the week, I was, we were, we always keep an eye on who might be the potential worst week candidate. And I was fairly sure we were looking at Sacramento B. Uh, you know, they let go of Jack Oman, Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist who also worked on editorials and they cut him loose. And well, three, they three across the, the country, three McClatchy Pulitzer Prize winners. That's a really it's brutal. Yeah, and I just thought, you know, the Sacramento Bee is really, when you're letting go of someone like that, I mean, not like I've, I've met Jack Oman, I don't know him well, but I mean, he's a recognizable brand in the press world. Again, he's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's doing these cartoons that are getting shared all over the place, and they just let him go, and I, that's bad for, I feel like it's bad for California, it's bad for us as readers to lose that voice, but it's also bad for the for the Bee to lose someone that's that well-respected and with that, you know, high of a profile, that long of a career, I really thought we were going to be talking about the B, you know, and Clatchy having the worst week. But thanks to the Assembly Dems, they're they're a little sub, they're just a subhead here. Right. Well, and full disclosure, Jack's a, a friend of mine. And, you know, uh, so I, I'll refrain from saying too much, but yes, that was a very, very, very surprising uh, chain of events. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, well, you know, and to some extent, I mean, the bees rationale is look, we're, we're, people aren't paying attention to these things anymore. I think they're wrong, but that's their rationale. And if that's the rationale, okay. But I, I, I think a lot of people would vehemently disagree with that stance, but again, I'm going to, I'm not going to say anymore because Jack is actually a friend of mine. So I'll just, I'll just drop that. But, yeah, I think uh, I think the what happened in the assembly definitely overshadowed that. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. I don't think uh, Lee was talking about that on uh, the East Coast press, maybe. Uh, at whereas I believe they were talking about California's child trafficking bill back there. So, right. Congratulations, yeah. Assembly Democrats. Yeah, when you see it on Meet the Press, even even if it's just Chuck Dodd, that's bad. That's real bad. So. So, well, I'm glad that you are feeling better and, uh, and you'll be able to listen to, uh, our, my chat with Greg, which was really fun and really intriguing. Uh, so you can actually hear it along with the rest of our audience when we, when this goes live. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. I love, I love hearing Greg tell stories. He's, he's one of the very best. It's true. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.